I should like to call your attention this morning to the words which are to be found in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians in the fourth chapter, verses two and three, the second and the third verses in the fourth chapter of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, in these two verses, the second and the third, which of course are intimately connected, as you see, with the first, the Apostle, having described the general character and nature of this uh, Christian life into which we have been called by God through his grace, now comes down to the particular applications. You remember that I stressed that last Sunday morning that before you come to the particulars, you must always consider the general. And the apostle himself does that. The general character of the life is that it is to be worthy of the calling to which we have been called. That must ever be central and uppermost in our minds. We have been called to a particular life. When we were dead in trespasses and sins, we were called and quickened and brought into it. Or, as the Apostle puts it so perfectly, in the tenth verse of the second chapter, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, unto good works which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. I remember when I preached on that verse some time ago, a friend, anonymous of course, wrote a letter to me and was rather surprised that I went on to the 11th verse without telling the congregation what these good works were. But as I believe in expounding the scriptures, we had to go on with what the apostle said. But now we've come to it. These are the good works created in Christ Jesus unto good works which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Now then, we have seen the general character of the life, and now we come to consider the particulars. There are several of them. Indeed, the remainder of this great epistle uh, deals with these particular questions. There again is an important point which we must bear in mind. Though the gospel always starts with the general, it never stops at the general. It always comes down to the particulars. So any teaching about sanctification, which gives the impression that it can give it all to you in just one formula, without going into details, is obviously false to the New Testament method. It goes into the particulars and into the details. Now, we are in what he calls a walk. And that in itself, of course, is significant also. Uh, 
it suggests activity, it suggests movement, it suggests progress. Work that out for yourselves. I don't stay with it, but it's an important representation of the Christian life. You walk worthy of the vocation. You don't stay where you were. You don't say, oh, now I'm saved, my sins are forgiven, it's all right, and spend the rest of your life there, and always talking about your conversion, and always looking back and staying there. No, no, you walk, you go on, it's an activity, and it's an advance, and you're ever going forwards, and there are fresh things being discovered and fresh experiences, the walk, walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. Now then, here I say we come down to the particular things, and the first which he mentions is this, that we endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's the first particular. Everything in the whole of the life must be worthy of the calling with which we are called. Well then, what comes first? Here it is, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, we obviously must ask a question here. Why did he choose this as the first thing? Why is this the first particular? The answer, of course, is to be found in the first three chapters of this great epistle. Because there, the thing which the apostle has been emphasizing in his doctrine, above everything else, is this great matter of unity. That he tells us very plainly and specifically in the 10th verse of the first chapter is the primary objective which God had in mind when he purposed before the foundation of the world and before time to send his only begotten son into this world to do a particular thing. Here is how he puts it, you remember. That in the dispensation of the fullness of time, in other words, he planned all this in according to the mystery of his own will before the foundation of the world. He purposed it in himself. What? Well, this. That he might gather together in one or that he might reunite in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. Now then, this is the primary objective. Sin, you see, is a disruptive force. Sin always divides, it always separates. It splinters. And that is the peculiar havoc that sin has made of men and of life. Division. A man's divided even within himself. There's this constant fight and struggle which we're all aware of the moment we are born into this world. Good and bad, right and wrong. Shall I, shan't I? Division. Division between men and men, enmity, war, all the world has become shattered by sin. What's the object of salvation? To reunite, to bring together again, to restore the unity that obtained before sin and the fall made this terrible havoc. And so the apostle, you remember, has gone on and has worked it out. He says, in whom also we, the Jews, have obtained an inheritance, and then in whom ye also, trusted after that he heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And then we've seen how he works it out in detail in that second chapter. The middle wall of partition is gone, and of this twain one new man 
One new body has been made. The whole thing is about this unity. So it's very natural, isn't it? And almost inevitable. That when he comes down to the particularities of this uh, Christian walk and life, the one that must come first is the preservation of this unity. It's God's grand design. It's the thing in which God glories above everything else. It is the peculiar mark of the Christian calling, this unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Therefore, he says, let's put this first, this above everything else. Very well then, it is vital, you see, that we should ask that question because we see that the apostle is still working out that word therefore, which we've seen in the first verse of this fourth chapter. It's therefore. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you. Therefore, in the light of all this doctrine, what I'm going to appeal to you about in particular, he says, is the direct outcome of this. It's still the calling to which you've been called. And this is the first respect, then the first particular respect, in which we must look at it together. Now, you notice the importance that the Apostle attaches to this question of unity, this unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. He goes on dealing with it until you come to the end of the 16th verse in this particular chapter. That is the one matter which he considers right down to the end of verse 16. Then in verse 17 he takes up another he begins to talk about their conduct and behavior in their detailed practice. But here is the first thing. And uh, you notice how he deals with it? Let's get the mechanics of this quite clear. In these two verses, verses 2 and 3, he makes a general appeal to them with respect to this unity. And then, in verses 4 to 16, he supplies them with reasons and arguments for doing this. How characteristic and typical this is once more of this great man's method. He first of all, as it were, on the human level makes an appeal to them. And then he says, if any of you are doubtful about this or if you are not clear in your minds as to why you ought to be doing it, listen. And out comes again some mighty doctrine about the whole nature and being and character of the church. And he works it out in detail in verses 4 to 16. But now this morning we are concerned with the general appeal. With all lowliness and meekness. With long-suffering for bearing one another in love. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This is not only the thing the Apostle puts first. I think you'll all agree who are at all abreast with modern trends in the Christian church. I think you'll agree that there is no subject which is being talked about so much and written about so much at the present time as this very question with which the Apostle here deals. It's the age of ecumenicity. The age of talking endlessly about union and reunion. Well, now, it's important, therefore, that we should consider what the great apostle has to say. There is a great deal of loose talk being indulged in with regard to this great subject. Our concern should be ever to be scriptural, to know exactly 
of what the New Testament teaches about these matters. Very well, let's look at it. The first principle, therefore, which we have to look at is the character of the nature of the unity. What kind of unity is this that the Apostle is concerned about? Well, let us be careful to observe that he is not just appealing for some general spirit of friendship or camaraderie. He is not uh, merely arguing for some community of spirit, friendliness, brotherliness. Neither is he appealing merely for some common aim or a series of common aims as against something else which is a common enemy. Now you see the point of my negatives, I'm quite sure. So much of the modern talk about unity is just put in some such terms as that. It's very vague, it's very indefinite, it's very nebulous. It's put uh, frequently like this, that uh, there's a great division in the world today. On the one hand, you have atheistic powers, communism and others, and that, uh, therefore, it is the business of all who in any way believe in God to come together. We must all come together. We mustn't be too particular about things, but we must have this spirit of fellowship and of friendship and of working together against this common enemy, a spirit of friendship. Now, we obviously must look at that. I'm not going to do so to any great extent, but I do trust that we shall keep it in our minds as we follow our positive exposition of what the Apostle tells us in this chapter. But at once we notice one thing which is surely of very great importance. Whatever this unity is about which the Apostle speaks, it is a unity that comes directly out of all that he has been saying in chapters 1 to 3. You cannot start in chapter 4 of the Epistle to the Ephesians. There's no sense in that. In other words, you cannot have a unity unless it is based upon the great doctrines outlined in chapters 1 to 3. The therefore. So that if a man comes to me and says, now look here, I don't care very much what you believe. If you call yourself a Christian, or if you believe in God in any sense, now let's all work together. I say, but my dear sir, what about chapters 1 to 3 of the epistle to the Ephesians? I know of no unity except that which is the outcome of and the offspring of all the great doctrines which the Apostle has already been enunciating. Whatever this unity is, we can say this about it. It must be theological. It must be doctrinal. It must be based upon an understanding of the truth. Now then, I want to try to show you that the Apostle says that. Because you will notice in your Bibles that the word spirit has got a capital S. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. He's not talking about the manifestation of some human spirit of friendship. He isn't thinking of the so-called spirit of the school or the cricket team or the football team. No, that isn't the Spirit. It's a capital S. It's the Holy Spirit endeavoring to keep the unity of the Holy Spirit. You see, he goes on in verse 4 to say the same thing. There is one body and one spirit. Capital S, Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. All along, this word spirit must be interpreted as referring 
to the Holy Spirit himself. Now it is because this is so constantly forgotten that most of the modern talk about unity seems to me to be entirely outside the scriptural references. It is something human. It is something that belongs to men. It is not a unity that is in the Spirit himself. Very well, let me put it to you in the form of a number of statements. The unity about which the Apostle is concerned here is the unity which is produced and created by the Holy Spirit himself. He alone can produce this unity. And it is he alone that does produce this unity. Now, look at this. This this is something really very striking. The Apostle makes it perfectly plain and clear here that this is a unity that you and I can never produce. You see, he doesn't even ask us to do so. He doesn't call upon us to do so. He doesn't exhort us to do so. The Apostle doesn't ask us to create a unity. What he asks us to do is not to break the unity that is already there and which has been produced and created by the Holy Spirit himself. It is the unity of the Spirit. It is his creation, it is his work, it is something that he does in us. Very well, because that is true, I think the following deductions are also true. The unity about which the Apostle is concerned is a living unity. It's a vital unity. It isn't a mechanical unity. This is really quite basic in importance in these matters. There is all the difference in the world between a coalition and a true unity. There is all the difference in the world between an amalgamation and a true unity. Amalgamations and coalitions mean a number of different, disparate units coming together for a given purpose. This unity starts within and goes out. It's the unity of a flower, of life, of a tree, an animal. It's something essential, organic and vital. Not something artificially produced. Something inevitable because of the nature of the thing itself. Or if you like, it's not an external unity. It is an internal unity. Right, that's my first principle, but let me go on and say this. This unity can only be understood as the work of the Holy Spirit is understood. As it is his work, I think that follows of necessity. If we haven't a right understanding of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, we cannot understand this unity. If we call the Holy Spirit it, or regard him as merely a power, and don't realize that he's the third person in the blessed Holy Trinity, we can't understand this unity, and this unity is non-existent. Because it is the work of the Spirit, it cannot be understood, I say, unless we understand the doctrine of the Spirit. And in the same way, this unity can never be felt and experienced unless the Holy Spirit is in us 
and has done his gracious work within us. Now, that is why it's sometimes so difficult to discuss this subject with people. They don't agree about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. They don't agree with regeneration and rebirth. That's not their idea of Christianity at all. Their idea of Christianity is just doing good and being moral and being religious and taking interest in the denomination, perhaps. Well, of course, there's no conversation possible. Their whole conception of the Spirit is different, and there is just no unity between such people and those who take another view of the work of the Spirit. So I would put this still more particularly by putting it in this form. If the Holy Spirit is not in us, we cannot experience this unity. If the Holy Spirit is not in another person, well then we cannot experience this sense of unity with him. But if the Holy Spirit is in that other person and in me, at once we are conscious of an affinity and a bond of unity for, for the reason that the same Spirit is in us both and we recognize one another. But surely these are quite basic and fundamental considerations. As it is the Holy Spirit who produces it, as it is his creation, his work, and as it results from his work in individual people, these Ephesians who once were far off and outside and strangers from the commonwealth, but who now have been brought in, he's acted in them, he's acted in the Jew, and so they're one, it's always the same. And therefore to talk about, now let's forget all this and let's just get together and find a common basis or a common denominator as little as we can. It's all, I say, just a strange language. It's talking about something entirely different. You can do that in politics. You can do that in industry. You can do it in many realms. But when you start with the Holy Spirit and his person and his activity, you just mustn't speak like that. It's his production. And there's no argument. If he is not in me, I have no fellowship with the man in whom he is. If it isn't in him and in me, there's no fellowship. If he's in both of us, there is fellowship. And it's the only basis of fellowship. It is where he reigns. And it is where the fellowship of the Holy Spirit is experienced. That this unity exists. That is why, you see, the benediction always emphasizes that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. This fellowship of the Spirit, where he is, there is unity. That is why that is always the final benediction. Well, now we shall see as we go on to consider verses 4 to 6 how the apostle works all this out in detail. Let me sum it up at this moment so that I can come to the particular appeal. This unity is primarily spiritual, unseen, and internal. But of course, it expresses itself also visibly and externally. Because as Christians we live together, we belong to churches, and we come into contact with one another. The thing itself is internal, its external expression also has to be considered. But again, let us notice the importance of the order. 
You don't start with that which is external and then hope to arrive at the internal. You start with the internal and go out to the external. Now, do you see here again is something which you must bear in mind as you read the modern books about ecumenicity and listen to the sermons and to the appeals? Their great argument is this. Here we are divided and separated. Let's begin to act together, to work together, and then we'll probably feel the spirit of unity. But that's a denial of the whole thing. In every manifestation of life, the internal principle comes first and then the outward manifestation. It was like that in creation. It's like that in reproduction. In one cell which has got all that life within it, the beginning takes place. And from that one germ, the life, the manifestations come out. A body, as I'm never tired of saying, does not consist of a collection of parts and portions stuck together somehow. No, no. It's the parts have come out of the central being. The parts have emanated from the heart, from the living core. And it's exactly the same with this great question, this great principle of unity. The unity of the spirit. Something that you can't see and something which you almost can't define even and yet it's there and you recognize it and you feel it when you come into contact with another in whom the Spirit is. Ah, that's the vital thing. Yes, but because we are in the body, we have to consider together the external manifestations. Nobody's ever seen a soul and yet the soul is the most important thing in men. You can't see the soul and spirit. And yet, you see, though you can't see them, they're vital, they're absolutely important. And if I merely discuss my body and leave out the soul, how foolish I am. No, no, you don't go to the soul and spirit through the body. It is the soul and spirit that manifest themselves through the body. And it's exactly the same with this principle of unity. Very well, then. Let us start as the Apostle does with the practical. Having considered the nature, the character of the unity, let us look at our duty with respect to it. And the Apostle puts it quite simply for us. Here is the first thing which we ever have to remember in our walk, in this calling to which we have been called. We are to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. What's he mean? Well, take his words. The particular words really say it all. What is to endeavor? Well, I'm afraid we rather think of this word endeavor today, don't we, as uh, making an attempt at but that's not the real meaning of the word endeavor. It really means to be diligent. It comes from a word which represents speed. It really means hurrying to do it. Being diligent. Having a great concern. Expressing solicitude. Endeavoring to keep. Above everything else, says the apostle, as Christians in this calling to which you've been called, hasten to do this. Be diligent, never forget it. Let this be the chiefest thing in your life, as it were. Above all else, 
show great concern and solicitude with respect to this. Endeavoring. And then you see the next word is the word to keep. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit. Oh, how important these words are. To keep means to guard, to hold fast, to preserve. You see, here he's expounding what I've been trying to say. He doesn't ask us to to make a unity or to create a unity. No, no, guard it, he says. It is there. It's there because you're Christians. You can't be a Christian without the work of the Holy Spirit. You can't be a Christian without the Spirit residing in you. And he's in you all as Christians. Very well, there is the unity. Don't you bother about that. It's there. What have you got to do? To guard it, to keep it, to preserve it. And here, you see, is his great exhortation. That our first and chiefest concern as Christians is to to guard and to preserve this precious, wondrous unity of the Spirit. God's grand design, the thing which God is doing and by means of which we've been told in chapter 3, verse 10, even the principalities and powers in the heavenly places are going to be astonished and amazed when they see it. This, if you believe in God, I say you must ever feel that your first call is this, to guard this unity, to preserve it at all costs, strain every nerve, be diligent, endeavoring to keep it and to preserve it. Now this is the first call that comes to us all as Christian people. How do we do it? Well, again, the apostle picks out his words and all I have to do is to hold them before you. They say everything that needs to be said. Let me just group them together for you. Two words. The first two describe us and our own internal disposition. And the other words describe our relationships to others. Look at them. Look at these great and glorious words. How am I to endeavor to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace? Here's the first thing. With lowliness. What's lowliness? Lowliness is humility. And especially, observe this, humility of mind. Now, that isn't my idea. That is what you'll find in all the lexicons with regard to this. Humility, especially with regard to the mind. It means modesty. It's the opposite, you see, of self-esteem and self-assertion. It is the opposite of pride. Humility, the chiefest of all the Christian virtues, the hallmark of the man, the child of God. Humility is the very chiefest of all the Christian virtues, and it means humility of mind, having a poor opinion of yourself and of your powers and of your faculties. It means, to use the word of our Lord in the Sermon on the Mount, to be poor in spirit, 
It's the opposite, isn't it, of the men of the world. It's the opposite of the worldly spirit which says, trust in yourself. Believe in yourself. It's the opposite of all the aggressiveness and the self-advertisement and all the brazenness of life at this present time. There is nothing sadder about this present age than the appalling absence of humility. And when this is true as it is of the church of God, it is the greatest tragedy of all. Humility. Humbleness of mind. Having a poor opinion of yourself and of your powers. And with it, of course, goes meekness. Meekness always accompanies humility. What's it mean? Well, meekness means an inner mildness. An inner mildness. Gentleness. Let's be clear about this. This is compatible with great strength. Moses was the meekest of all men, and yet he was a strong man. And yet, in his inner being, he was a very mild man, a gentleman. And our Lord himself, as I'm going to show you, was meek. Meekness really means readiness to suffer wrong, if needs be, committing it all to God. Now this apostle himself is a very weak man. He can say some very strong things. He could be firm and powerful. There's something magisterial about his statements. And yet you see, you read his epistles right through, you'll find this element of humility and of meekness coming out. He's already brought it out, hasn't he, in the third chapter. And to me, he says, who am less than the least of all saints. He was the greatest of them all. But he says unto me, who am the less... Less than the least of all saints is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Oh, my friends, humility and meekness. These are the first essentials in guarding the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I say these are the things you find in our Lord himself. Listen to him. He says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart. And he was. And ye shall find rest for your souls. This is what I read of him. Uh, Matthew in the twelfth chapter of his gospel quotes from Isaiah this. He shall not strive nor cry aloud, neither shall any man hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench, till he send forth judgment unto victory. That was his character. That is what you see in our blessed Lord. And we belong to him and are members of his body. Humility and meekness. And listen to the apostle in writing to the Corinthians, making use of this argument. He says, Now I, Paul, myself beseech you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. And he's really doing the same thing here. And then he puts it explicitly, you remember, in writing to Timothy and giving him advice. Listen to this. But foolish and unlearned questions avoid, knowing that they do gender strifes. And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, 
patient, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves, if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. That's how you're to behave, says the Apostle to Timothy. There will be people who won't agree with you. Well, now don't hammer them. But do it in this way. You mustn't strive with them. Get them to see it. Put it before them in a way that will appeal to them. Try and win them to it. Wean them from error. And win them to the truth. Or take the way in which the Apostle Peter puts it, which is very striking. In his first epistle, chapter 5 and 5th verse, he says, Yea, let all of you be subject one to another, and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. Now this is a wonderful phrase, this. Be clothed with humility. Do you know what that means? The very word that is translated clothed means this. Putting on the apron of humility. The apron of humility. And I'm perfectly certain that when Peter wrote that, he had in his mind that scene which we read of together in the 13th chapter of the Gospel according to St. John. Did you notice it? Here is the Son of God, and this is what we are told about him. He knew whence he had come and whither he was going. He knew that he had come from God and he was going to God. And what did he do? He took a towel and he put it on himself as an apron and he stooped down and he washed the feet of his disciples. And he said to them, If I who am your Lord and Master, do that to you. Do the same to one another. If I wash your feet, wash one another's feet. Be clothed with humility. Put on humility as an apron. Gird yourself with the towel of humility and go down, stoop right down and wash the feet of others. This is the secret, you see, of preserving the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And he says, with all humility and meekness. Why does he add the word all? He means this, with every possible humility and meekness, with every kind, in all situations, at all times. Oh, don't only put on this apron on Sundays and then forget it in business on Monday. Always keep it on. Always be clothed with humility. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, whoever the person is, whatever the time, all humility and meekness, never be without it. Oh, how we need the exhortation. Well, you see, that is to be our own fundamental disposition and character. Are we humble, my friends? Let no man think of himself above that which he ought to think, says the Apostle. Let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. You know, it's our wrong conceits of ourselves that cause division. Once proud of his birth, once proud of his family, once proud of his money, his nationality, his status, his business acumen, another's proud of his brain, his understanding perhaps of doctrine, and he's so proud of it that he's causing division and denying his doctrine. Humility. Humbleness of mind. I beseech you in the bowels of Christ, said Oliver Cromwell, to those Scotch presbyters you remember, I beseech you in the bowels of Christ. 
to consider whether he may be mistaken or not. That's humility. And meekness, I say, goes with it, and we are to show it everywhere. But you see, we don't stop at that. If that's our fundamental disposition, we are to manifest all this in our dealings with others. Long-suffering. What's that mean? Well, it just means suffering long. It means a long holding out of the mind before it gives room to passion or to action. Here's a person who's irritating you by his conduct, by what he says, or by something else. What's it mean? Well, you just hold out. Don't give way to that desire to demolish him or to smash him or to correct him or to put him down or whatever it is. Hold on. Be long-suffering. Don't give way to passion or to action. You know, long-suffering is attributed to God himself in the Bible. And if God were not long-suffering, not one of us would be in this chapel at this moment. Not one of us would be a Christian. If God were not long-suffering, there'd be no Christianity at all. It's his attitude to us. Let it be our attitude towards one another. We do have to suffer. Others have to suffer from us. Well, very well, suffer long. And forbearing, all these words are very similar. It's similar in this way. What does to forbear mean? It means to hold yourself up against. There is that person and he tempts me to do so. Hold yourself up against the temptation. Forbearing. Put up with it. Bear it, endure it, suffer it. Oh, these things are difficult, don't they? Yes, but you see, we are called to such a glorious life that it's bound to be difficult. Thank God it is. And we are called to this long-suffering and forbearing. You see, here are others. They don't understand things as we do, or they're not doing things that we'd like them to do. They may be doing all sorts of things. Well, now, what are we to do? Well, we're to say, no, no, I don't retaliate at once. I'm concerned about the preservation of the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Very well, then, I'll bear with them. Perhaps that person's irritable because he's been having a very trying time. He may not be well, I don't know. Perhaps he hasn't had advantages, he hasn't had opportunities. Uh, perhaps his brain power isn't uh, what it ought to be. Uh, perhaps he hasn't had an opportunity of hearing these particular truths as he should have done. Now, it means this, you see, make every excuse you can for the other person, whether it's in conduct or doctrine or anything else. Oh, try above everything else to win him to your position if you're convinced you're right. But don't down him, as it were. Don't strike him. Don't hit him on the head. Don't dismiss him. Don't be contemptuous. Don't be impatient. We must be patient with one another. We must be forbearing. We must be long-suffering. And you notice the word he adds? With all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. Ah, that's it. If you only love people, well then you will be long-suffering and forbearing because you'll have their interests at heart. You won't be so concerned to show that you are right and they are wrong. You'll be anxious that all should be right. You love them and you're interested in them and concerned about them. And because you are, of course, you're patient. Look at the kind of parent who is impatient with a little child. Why, it's terrible, isn't it? It's awful. If you love that child, you'll be patient with him. He'll ask you the same question a thousand times and you'll still go on answering you do something, he says, do it again. And you do it again and again. And on you go until you're almost exhausted, but you're 
in a way you even enjoy it, though you're almost collapsing physically. Why will you love the little child? Long-suffering and forbearing. He doesn't know. He doesn't understand. And it would be very wrong to expect him to do at that age. Well, come down to his level. Descend. Put on the apron. Get on your knees. Be one with him. That's the, that's the principle. Long-suffering and forbearing. Well, I mustn't keep you, but I would like to show you just this as I close. That what he's really saying is this. You see, that as we are like this, well, we are preserving the unity. Why? Well, because we are peaceable. We are peace-loving. And we are people who are easy to live with. We are peacemakers. And this is what he tells us, that this unity of the Spirit is kept together, it's bound or bended together by peace, by the band or the bond which is peace. And as we are peaceable and peace-loving and peacemaking, we preserve peace and we preserve the unity. What is it all? Well, it's all just this, you see. It's just the Apostle Paul's way of stating the Beatitudes that the Lord Jesus Christ stated at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, this is the sort of people I've come into the world to produce. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are they that mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are they that do hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are the peacemakers. Paul was just repeating it. That is the Christian. That's the calling to which we've been called. My dear friends, if we fail here, success anywhere else is useless. If my being right means that I break the peace, I'm not right. There's something wrong in my balance or in something about me. The end of all doctrine is to preserve this unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The end of all conduct is the same. It's the Beatitudes. It's 1 Corinthians 13, or if you like. It is the fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, meekness, faith, temperance. And all the apostle is really saying is this, don't quench the Spirit. Don't grieve the Spirit. But allow the Spirit to produce his own glorious fruit in you and amongst you. And as you do so, the unity of the Spirit himself will be preserved amongst you by this wonderful bond and band of peace with all humility and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. Amen.